Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Sorry that Jim couldn't be here. I'm sorry that Steve and Luann couldn't be here, but I'm glad that those of you who are here and are able to be here just pray that uh, what we do and what we say this afternoon will be honoring to our God and Savior. Today's message I've entitled Rivers of Living Water. And the text for today is John chapter 7. Uh, The particular verses that we're looking at speak of these rivers of living water. They're verses 37 through 39 of John chapter 7. I will go ahead and just begin by reading that into your hearing to start with. John 7 verse 37 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not glorified. Not yet glorified. Let's have another word of prayer before we begin the study this morning. Heavenly Father, you are indeed holy, holy, holy. And as the hymn teaches us, when we gather to worship, all is vain unless your spirit comes to us and is present. And that's our prayer this morning. We pray that your spirit would be among us, guiding us into the truth before us, We ask that your word uh, and your spirit, that you would give them to me to be able to speak to these uh, people who are here to hear your word. We ask that you would open their ears so that they can understand it. And we ask that through the whole process, it would redound to your glory that you may gain more honor for your name's sake. So thank you again for this opportunity. We pray that you would be blessed in all that's done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John chapter 7. I guess I'll just give you a summary and overview first, and then we'll jump into that uh, summary. So our goal today is to uh, understand and rejoice and to really kind of get a firm grasp on this proclamation that Jesus makes here in John chapter 7 about the rivers of living water. And really get the context and the history and the setting, because that's important to really understand what he's saying. So we're going to look at uh, the context. We're going to look at some of the uh, Old Testament verses that really bring light and illuminate this particular passage. And then, because it is about the Holy Spirit, that's what he's referencing as the river of living water. We're going to look through the balance of the day uh, and look through uh, the various verses in the scripture that reveal the promise, the purpose, and the role of the Holy Spirit. And all of that, hopefully, to bring it back together to this particular verse and really see and understand how the Holy Spirit is indeed like a river of living water. Uh, it's a wonderful passage. I think it, it's been a blessing for us to study through this in men's group, and it's something that I've kind of been mulling over for a while and been wanting to speak of. And uh, so the opportunity uh, arose uh, yesterday. So really looking forward to this. So let's get a little bit of the context of John chapter 7 here. If you'll remember, coming off of John 6, uh, Jesus's life has been 
threatened. He's, uh, he healed a man uh, on the Sabbath, and because of that, there are those among the Jewish leaders who are looking to, uh, to kill him. And so he hasn't been able to uh, be in the area of Judea because of that, and he spent more of his time out in Galilee. But in John chapter 7, we see uh, while he's in Galilee, it's now the time uh, of the feast, um, the, the great feast, uh, the Feast of Booths is what verse 2 tells us. And the, it's Jesus' brothers that are trying to get him to go up to the temple, to Jerusalem for this particular feast. Now, we know the, uh, uh, the Feast of Booths is one of the uh, three main feasts, the uh, Feast of Pilgrimage um, that uh, the Jews were required to keep. Uh, if you remember the Feast of Passover, uh, and after that, the uh, Feast of Pentecost, and then uh, in the fall, the, uh, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's known. So that's the setting. Oh, I wanted to just, I guess, do a little bit of a more in-depth understanding of what the Feast of Booths is, uh, so we can understand the setting. And if we'll look at Leviticus Chapter 23, here we can see God give Moses uh, the requirements and the details of this particular feast and when it was and how they were supposed to keep it uh, so that we can know what's happening in the background when Jesus gives this proclamation of coming to him to drink and this proclamation and promise of rivers of living water. In Exodus, or in Leviticus chapter 23, Moses uh, has received from the Lord special instructions on how to keep the feasts. And in verse 33, we're given the specifics and the details of the Feast of Booths. Uh, Verse 33 reads, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths. So, the uh, seventh month on the 15th day, a very specific time when it's required for Israel to keep this feast for seven days. So it's a week-long feast. The first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations and present your offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own, besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord and besides your gifts and besides all your votive and freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, so this was a a harvest celebration as well, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and burrows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So this is very much a feast of celebration. It was one of the feasts most looked forward to and anticipated. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven 
days in the year. It shall be a perpetual salute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel in the appointed times of the Lord. So here we get the history of the Feast of Booths and the Feast of the Tabernacles, and we see that it's a celebration time. Um, it takes place right after the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement is on the 10th, five days later, the 15th, where we have the, the feast take place. And as we can see, the uh, children of Israel are called to gather together these uh, leaves and tree branches and all of this foliage, and they use those to uh, make tents and these, these booths that symbolize their time in the wilderness when God brought them out of the land of Egypt and protected them while they were traveling and journeying. These are meant to be uh, temporary homes. That's what they re- resemble because the children of Israel had not received their promised land yet. They haven't made it into their permanent home. And so this is a Uh, a time of remembrance when God protected them and brought them and drew them out and then brought them to the promised land when the the time was full and determined by God. We even see today, there's Jews that uh, practice this feast, and we even see, I've seen it before, and some in New York City, they have outside of their apartments uh, these booths that they make up, and they put leaves over there. They're kind of, some of them are kind of crude looking, but that's the intention. All of this is, is to... Uh, design the worshiper to have a moment, this time of reflection upon uh, who God is and how he drew them out from the land of Egypt. So that's the background. That's the feast that's happening here. It's, it's a, again, a very celebratory feast because of the time of the harvest and thankfulness for what God has done for his people. And so in chapter 7, while this feast is about to begin, Jesus' brothers are encouraging, they're asking him, to go down to the feast, to go down, really to go up to Jerusalem, uh, to the temple to celebrate this feast. And we know because uh, of the threat to his life, he initially tells them, you know, he's not going to go. Uh, He's going to stay. Then after they leave, later he comes in secret and uh, goes to the feast. In the middle of the week, in the middle portion of the feast, then he goes up to the temple uh, and he begins to teach there. So even though his life was under threat, he goes up to the temple and he's preaching and teaching the word uh, to all of these people. And we have to imagine and remember that this is a feast where all the children of Israel were called to Jerusalem at this particular time. So there would have been a lot of different people coming in from uh, lots of different areas. So a lot of people in this atmosphere and at the temple at this time, because of the miracles that he had done, and all the rumors that were spreading about him for the great works that he had done, there was murmuring among the crowd, rumors and wondering where he is. Is he going to show up at this time? They expected him to because he was a practicing Jew, so they thought he would be there. So there's this charged atmosphere of celebration and an atmosphere of expectation because not only was the Feast of Booths a time of Remembering, but it was also a, a time of looking forward to the uh, messianic promises that were yet to come. So it was a, a, a jubilant time. In the middle of that, there's this question of will he show up? Will he be there? And then he enters and he begins teaching. And he's teaching in a way that 
is astonishing to the Jews, verse 15 says. They're not able to understand how someone that doesn't have the education as all the other rabbis is able to teach in this way. So this is really getting the attention of the crowd. Um, There's more and more discussion about who he really is. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? And then we get down to the portion where we're looking at uh, in verse 37. While all of this is going on in this atmosphere at this particular time, Jesus at the temple teaching before the people. And we even have the, uh, the guards that were called out by the uh, high priest to, to go and arrest him because they didn't want him there teaching. And even the guards, as we'll see later, they say, we've never heard anyone teach in this manner. So they were astonished as well. And they didn't even follow through with their order to be able to arrest him because they've never heard anyone teach the way this man does. So then, verse 37, the text that we really want to focus on. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, we have to stop right there and do a little more, gain a little more of an understanding of what this means. This is the buildup of the feast, and there was, at this particular time, at the uh, second temple, during Jesus' time, there was also a lot of other different traditions that happened with the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And one of those was the uh, water libation ceremony. This is one of the most looked forward to ceremonies throughout the whole week. And I went ahead and just uh, printed off some information here that I wanted to share with you just so we get that understanding in the background because it's really from that that this makes this proclamation, uh, this invitation that Jesus makes. Really, when we understand that, it, it just means so much more in light of what's the setting that he's with. I'm just going to go ahead and read. This is from uh, jewishroots.net, and they have a a description of the ceremony that I wanted to bring to you, and I guess I'll just give you uh, some of the highlights here of what it was and a description of the ceremony. The water libation ceremony is one of the most popular parts of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. This ceremony followed the daily sacrifices. Uh, It is no longer practiced today, but it was being practiced during the Second Temple era and during the time of Jesus. Jesus used this ceremony, and that's what we're about to see, to make a bold statement. One reason the water libation ritual was so popular in the Second Temple was the accompanying ceremony of water drawing, which took place at night when water was drawn from the Pool of Siloam for the next morning's water libation ceremony. Each day, for seven consecutive days, a priest would walk up a ramp leading to the bronze altar located in the temple court and pour a jug full of water into a bowl that drained onto the altar. The ceremony of water drawing was a jubilant occasion. Uh, the Mishnah states that he that has never seen joy of the ceremony of water drawing has never in his life seen real joy. As the ceremony took place, and you can Imagine this in, within the atmosphere of Jesus' proclamation here. The Levites were playing lyres and, and trumpets and harps and cymbals and other instruments um, while the rest of the Levites were singing. Uh, in the temple area, there was the uh, golden candlesticks. Those lights could be seen throughout Jerusalem. People were celebrating and dancing. There was a uh, practice that was common that they were reciting Isaiah 12 Three, which reads, therefore, 
With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So imagine that going on in the background of this. We have this water ceremony going on daily, this jubilant festival, people looking forward to the Messiah, people referencing and chanting and and reciting uh, the prophecy of Isaiah that they shall draw waters out of the well of salvation. It must have been an incredible sight to see. Now, the significance of the ceremony, uh, it's important to know uh, something about the water. It was taken from the spring uh, just east of Jerusalem from the uh, spring of Gahan. This is the spring that um, where Hezekiah connected the tunnel that allowed that water to flow uh, into the pool of Siloam. And this is where kings of Israel were anointed here. So there was this anointing aspect as well of this water. Uh, this pool of Siloam not only held historical significance, but in Jewish tradition, it also had a prophetic connotation. First, the Jewish scriptures speak of a time when, uh, like water poured out upon him that is thirsty. This is a quote from Isaiah 44. Like water poured out on him that is thirsty, the floods upon the dry ground, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Because the waters of Siloam were used to anoint the kings of the house of David, and the anointing was symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual. But also, secondly, this outpouring is to take place during the days of Messiah, the anointed one, a reference to King David, through whom salvation will come to Israel. Based on Isaiah 12:3, the pool of Siloam became known as the well of salvation and was associated with the messianic age. Thus, the Jewish people of the second temple uh, in their days, pouring out the water on the altar of the Feast of Tabernacles was symbolic of the Holy Spirit being poured out during the days of the Messiah. So we can see that there was a lot of significance. There's so much going on in the background when we understand the historical details of what was going on that we see here on the last day of the feast, Jesus stands up the great day. We know that Every day they went um, and drew the water, brought it up. The priest poured it on the, uh, on the altar. And on, on the last day, uh, they drew the water and went around the altar seven times to signify when uh, they went around Jericho before they entered into the promised land. And so there's great celebration over that. And that's how Jesus, at this time, we don't know the exact and particular time, but we certainly know that the people who were there, who witnessed this, they understood what he was saying. They understood that this was a significant event. We can tell that by their response. But in the middle of this, in the middle of this atmosphere, on this great day of celebration, Jesus, during this time of the water libation ceremony, stands up and he cries out with a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, not anyone else. There's no other way. He is pointing and distinctly saying that he is the only one who cleanses. He is the only one that can provide a remedy for those who are thirsty. He is making himself equal to God. He's making himself the Messiah. He is pointing out to the people that what they are looking forward to in these celebrations and in these rituals is really him. He is the fulfillment of them. And so 
when we understand that context for him talking about being thirsty and, and only being able to come to him to drink, that that is representative of the Holy Spirit, we start to get a real significance of just how important the Holy Spirit is to us. And we're going to look into that. This invitation, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Now, he's already, this isn't an Arminian verse that we can look at and say that, well, this is a free will invitation that anyone can come and uh, anyone who makes a decision can come. He's already told us in the previous chapter, in John chapter 6, he told us how one does come. Remember in John 6, verse 37, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So that's how you come. There's, no, there's inability, complete inability um, by the individual to be able to come unless the Father draws him. Uh, so this is not a, a, a free will statement here. He's already given us and. And he said that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So it's a one-for-one one equation that those that the Father gives will come. And he who comes, I will in no wise cast out, he says in the previous chapter. And here we can see of those who come, those who are thirsty, uh, he will give to them to drink of living water. And we think about those who are thirsty. The sad reality is not everyone was thirsty. The Pharisees here, they were happy in their self-righteousness. They weren't uh, looking for any answers. They thought they were good. They were not in a position where they were broken by their sin. They were not in a state of remorse or they were not in a position where they were saw themselves as needing anything. But the message is to those who are thirsty, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, those are the ones that will be satisfied. That's the group that he's talking about here. Those who are thirsty, let them come to me and let them drink. And let them drink this river of living water. He's already made mention earlier in the book of John as well. You remember back in uh, chapter 4 when he's talking to the uh, Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? What does he tell her when he asks her to, to draw and he gets into this discussion with her about the water there. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, referencing the water that's in Jacob's well. But then he goes on and extends that and says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's already made mention of this living water. He's expounding upon it here in chapter 7 when he says this incredible statement that he who believes in me, he's equating that with the people who come, the people who we know are drawn by God, the people who have a thirst, those who believe in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Just as he said in uh, John chapter 4, welling up inside of them will be rivers of living water. And there's a reference here. Jesus says, because he's referencing the, the particular scripture, he who believes in me as the scripture says. Now, it's interesting because there's not a direct quote uh, in the Old Testament that, that reads, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So there's 
some debate and contention about what he's really referencing there. What it seems to be is that he is referencing to living water as a whole. There's plenty of references of living water in the Old Testament. And it seems that he is not only making references to that living water. For example, in in Jeremiah 17, verse 13, the Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Uh, There's other references in uh, the book of Zechariah. There's references in the Psalms to this living water. And of course, we know even all the way back in Exodus at the uh, Jesus is the, the rock of Horeb. We know then when the Israelites were traveling in the wilderness, they had been drawn out from Egypt and they were questioning, murmuring among themselves, have you brought us out here to die? And they went to Moses inquiring, are we going to die out here? Because we have nothing to drink. We're thirsty. Moses then goes to God. He inquires of God. God tells him that he must go and strike the rock with the rod that he struck the Nile with. He said, I will be on that rock. You strike that rock. And water came from that. Out of that rock comes living water. Then the people were sustained by it. So there's that. And there's all these different references throughout the Old Testament to rivers of living water. And so what it appears to be that Jesus is doing with this references, he's, he's taking kind of a combination of those scripture references, but then he's adding to it and he's expanding it. He's making it more personal. He's saying from the most intimate level, from the innermost DNA of a person, that is where these rivers of living water will flow. That's where they will spring from. That's different. That's expanded upon from the Old Testament. Remember, verse 39 gives us John's commentary on that and tells us exactly what, why he said this. He spoke this of the Spirit. And it makes sense to, to understand it this way because he says, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So there's this element of the Holy Spirit that we know when Pentecost comes is different. The Holy Spirit was with the children of Israel in the Old Testament as a cloud by day and a fire by night, but yet he didn't inhabit individuals in the way that he would and will at Pentecost. And what Jesus is promising here is the Holy Spirit will at the time that he determines, and we're going to read later that that is after he ascends to the Father, then the Holy Spirit comes But he is telling them that when that happens and the Holy Spirit comes, it is at that point when the river of living water will flow from the innermost part of a person, the innermost being. It will change, and we can just see the, the, the language of a new creation that Paul talks about in that picture to understand that there is a radical difference when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in an individual. It's, it's life-changing. It's life-giving. And the people here, while they probably didn't understand the reference to the Holy Spirit as inhabiting an individual, they certainly got the, uh, the message that he was declaring himself as the Messiah, as the one who was fulfilling 
these messianic prophecies because we can see their reaction. They're, Certainly, this is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And then there's others that are, you know, wondering against that. But you can see him standing and making this proclamation in the midst of this atmosphere at this time with these rituals going on. That was significant to these people. And it is in our day. Uh, it's significant to us because of what he tells us about the Holy Spirit. So now with that understanding that Jesus is telling us that the Holy Spirit is this river of living water, John is going to continue to reference uh, the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of his gospel. I want to go ahead and take the time and look into some of those references. And really our goal here is to try to see in what way that the Holy Spirit really is a river of living water that sustains us. We want to see all of the different roles that come to us because of this blessing of the Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and turn to our first reference in John chapter 14. Jesus is going to continue to reference the Holy Spirit that is to come. And this is John chapter 14 after comforting the disciples about him leaving and his ascension back to the Father and telling them that he's going to go to prepare a place for them. He makes this promise to them in verse 16. I will ask the Father... And he will give another helper. So here we get a, our first glimpse of not only the, the promise that Jesus is making about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but we get an idea of who the Holy Spirit is and what his roles look like. Um, the helper, parakletos, is one who comes alongside to help or to comfort an advocate or an intercessor. And we're going to see those are the roles that he fulfills. I will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So there's taking up residency and with you permanently that he will stay with you. That is the spirit of truth. So we have another indication, another understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of, the, of truth. It is the one that leads us. He is the one that leads us into our understanding but notice also here, John tells us that, uh, Jesus tells us that whom the world cannot receive. So he's for a particular group. Not everyone can receive the Holy Spirit. But because he does not see him or know him, but you know him. He's comparing and contrasting the world that doesn't see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. And here's the the key, the key difference that Jesus was pointing to in chapter 7, he will be in you. The promise that he will inhabit and take up residence in a whole new way. And the transforming power that that will have in the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 1 and 2. These things I have spoken to you. This is verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you in remembrance of all that I said to you. So here's another role. He will teach you. He's the spirit of truth. So he's going to teach and instruct you and bring you in remembrance of all things uh, that I said to you. So he's telling this personally to the disciples. So it's true for them. And I think 
John, in this sense, is very much the beneficiary of this remembrance because I don't know how else he would be able to pen the whole uh, gospel without the Spirit bringing all of these things into remembrance. And certainly we uh, who have his Spirit, we've experienced things like this. Uh, We've experienced that time when God brings something to us into remembrance that Oh, yeah, there's this verse, and I don't know how I just remembered that. We've all kind of had that experience before of the Holy Spirit working in us to bring us to understanding, or when we've come across a certain text that we've read over and over and over again, and suddenly we see a part of it that we didn't see before, a truth that remained elusive to us, and yet for that particular time, the Holy Spirit determined that he was to reveal his truth in us by working in us. So that is a a wonderful role uh, that the Holy Spirit gives to us, that he brings things into remembrance, that he reveals uh, his truth to us. Verse 27 continues, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you love me... You have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So there's this comfort. That's the role of the Holy Spirit as well as a comforter, that if Christ leaves, we're not left on our own. He has that promise that he will send that comforter, and our hearts don't have to be troubled because we know he is alongside us and inside of us, working within us. In the next chapter, in John chapter 15, We also here see Jesus continuing to give us more information about the Holy Spirit and his role. He says in verse 26, When the Helper, again referring to him as the Helper, the Comforter, when he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, again referencing the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, here's another role, he will testify about me, And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So, the role of the Holy Spirit is to teach, to bring things into remembrance, uh, to be the spirit of truth, and to testify of Christ. So, the Holy Spirit is going to give the same message that Christ gave, because they are one and the same. The, The message from the Father, from Christ, to the Spirit, and he brings that to us, so that we, and the disciples here, will also testify. In the next chapter, in chapter 16, John gives us more details. Jesus preaching here in the Gospel of John gives us more details on the promise of the Holy Spirit and its particular roles. Verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, Where are you going? But because I have said these things, To you, sorrow has filled your heart, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. It's to your advantage. Why would it be possibly be an advantage that Christ would leave the disciples here? Well, he's going to tell us, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, here's the other roles that the Holy Spirit fulfills. When he comes, he will convict the 
the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because uh, they do not all believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of the world, the ruler of this world has been judged. So we see these three different roles that the Holy Spirit is in charge of convicting the world of sin uh, and also convicting of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit working in us brings forth the message of Christ, but also through that, with us being light in the world, it's, it's a message to sinners convicting them and showing them and revealing their unrighteousness. And I, I love the fact that he is also sent concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So it, it's stated in a way that that is already happened. We know that he was cast out of heaven at the beginning, but his judgment is determined. And we see that the Holy Spirit has a role in that judgment uh, of the ruler of this world of Satan. Verse 12 continues, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. Just as Jesus said that many times, I do not come on my own initiative. He said he comes from the Father. He's giving the same message uh, from the Father. So also the spirit when he comes, is not coming of his own initiatives, coming to do the will of God. He is coming to whatever he hears, it says, uh, he will speak and he will disclose it to you uh, what is to come. He will glorify me, so the Spirit will glorify Christ, uh, and he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So he intercedes on behalf of Christ and he gives us the truth, the message. From Christ, he reveals that and gives that to us. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he, may, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. What a wonderful blessing. What a wonderful role that is to know that though Christ is ascended to the Father, we're not without him. He is still here through his spirit, teaching us, instructing us, guiding us in all truth. And that is rivers of living water. That is what that is. And then we get to uh, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and we know this is that promised time. This is that time when, uh, that Jesus has spoken about when the Spirit was to come. And Acts chapter 1 reads this way. This is Luke talking. The first account I composed Theophilus. He's writing about the Gospel of Luke. That at that time when he wrote to Theophilus, uh, about all that Jesus began and to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles. So Jesus gave his particular orders through the Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them for a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, this is before his ascension, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. That is the promise, again, of the Holy Spirit, which he says, You heard of me, for John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there's this promise of the Holy Spirit to come, and he associates it with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that there's this intimate new relationship that is going to happen with the Holy Spirit coming down and inhabiting people in a way that hasn't happened before. That is about to happen, and we see what happens as these events play out in Acts. Jesus continues talking to the disciples about his ascension here in verse 6. So when they had all come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? That was their big question because they certainly expected this. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times, the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. However... It's not for you to know when that power, when that authority will be set up. That's future. That's to come. But yet, even though you're not given to know that authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what does that power accomplish? Through that power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, you, will, you shall be my witness in both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That is a picture of living water flowing out from Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit taking a hold of all his people whom God has chosen, his people here gathered together at Pentecost, and from this small people group, 120 people there originally, and then we see Pentecost happens, and the Spirit comes down, and they are able to speak in tongues and understand each other, and we see the amazing power of this Holy Spirit, and Immediately after that, 3,000 are saved. Then later, 5,000, and the church is growing and growing from there. Then from Jerusalem, and persecution happens, and they, so they go to Judea and Samaria, and from there all the way out to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's amazing power to understand, and we really can see in that picture how the Holy Spirit is like a, a river of living water. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, I'm sure you probably have, pictures of water running through a desert and you'll see how that everything right next to the river running through the desert is green there's life all around it but as soon as you get out from there where there's no water there's just death and decay and there's no real life that's the holy spirit flowing active bringing transforming life-changing power to all that it comes in contact with and we are so blessed that he inhabits us i want to look at uh passage I'm sure you're familiar with, but it does speak quite a bit about the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. I just love this particular passage for all that it is, but I want you to really focus on the role of the Holy Spirit in this passage. Romans chapter 8, we'll look at the beginning. This is coming off of chapter uh, 7 where Paul talks about the problem of his sin Uh, in his flesh, and that he can't do the things that he wants to, and how that his flesh wars with the Spirit, and there's that inner conflict, that inner battle within him. But all praise be to God. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law couldn't do... Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How did he do it? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's how we walk. That's how we live. If the spirit has taken up residence in us, we're a completely changed person. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And we see that these are contrary to each other. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. Diametric opposites. They are completely different. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So apart from the spirit, apart from the law of the spirit of life, there's no pleasing God. There's only walking in accordance with the flesh. That's completely different than if you are according to the spirit. Here's the difference. However, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If the spirit of God dwells in you, if the spirit of God dwells in you, you are radically changed and radically different. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. You are now a new creation identified with Christ because of his spirit. If the spirit dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, it doesn't belong to him. Your identity is tied to the spirit of Christ. And notice here the beautiful picture of how at the beginning of verse 9, the spirit is referred to the spirit of God dwells in you. And then Paul just interchanges that at the, the last half and says, and identifies it as the spirit of Christ. There's a beautiful picture of the triune God working together within you here. He does not belong to him. Anyone that does not have this spirit of Christ did not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him, this is just so incredible. If the spirit of him, that is the spirit of Christ that he's referencing. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit that dwells in you. That's an amazing promise. The spirit is a life-giving spirit and radically changes you. Rightly, Paul then continues, So then, brothers, we are under obligation. In, in light of that, we are under obligation. We are dead, not to the flesh, because the flesh is dead. We're not in the flesh, but to live according to it, we die. But we are under obligation if by the spirit. We are putting to death the deeds of the body. We will live. So the spirit is responsible for mortification. The spirit is the one that takes credit and deserves credit for anything that is improved about you in your life. If you have suffered from a particular sin that has taken hold of you and by God's grace that has been removed for you, that's because of his spirit. That's not something that you just get credit for or that you suddenly have a willpower to overcome it's because of his spirit changing you and mortifying the deeds of the flesh. 
And if that is true, you will live for all who are being, this is such a wonderful promise, all who are being led by the Spirit. Notice the Spirit is the one in charge. Those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these, their identity is the sons of God. The seal of the Spirit signifies ownership. Sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So the Spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. So there's another amazing element, a role of the Holy Spirit, working within our spirit, testifying and revealing to our spirit that we are the children of God. I know I need that uh, testimony within me. Uh, we've all been in those positions where we doubt, we have shortcomings. But thank the Lord that the Holy Spirit within us is there as a helper, reassuring us, calling us back to our identity as children of God. I've got quite a few other verses here. I think I'm going to have to um, cut some of these short. I, I do want to go since we are in chapter 8 of Romans here, and point out another element uh, of the, the Holy Spirit in verse 26. This is coming off Paul talking to us about how the creation is waiting for the redemption and its restoration, but we also are waiting for that redemption and restoration the problem is that we have this weakness in the flesh. He says in, in verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. There he is as the helper coming in and interceding in our moment of weakness. And, and this is just how pathetic we are. We don't even know how to pray as we should. We can't even do that. We can't even petition God in a way that we should. But Praise be to God, the Spirit intercedes for us in this language that we don't understand, a language, a groaning that is too deep for words, interceding for us, the Spirit on our behalf, in our weakness, when we don't even know how to communicate to God, is doing it for us, taking that groaning, that communication to the Lord so that He knows we're pretty pathetic, but He is pretty amazing. Um, thank the Lord for that. He who searches the heart knows what, the, what is the mind of the Spirit. So God who searches the heart, he knows what the Spirit looks like. He knows the identity of his own. So he can see and he knows the Spirit is present and he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Praise God for that. Does that make sense? Does that make sense that, that the Spirit can be called rivers of living water? Uh, he is an incredible attribute to us, a helper, an interceder, uh, one who seals us, one whose identity uh, completely changes us. We are a new creation. And I do want to, just because it's, just to bring it home and go to Revelation 22, since we've been in this area of the scriptures, and just to see how this all kind of culminates at the end in this beautiful picture, because there's a, a, a river of living water in the eternal kingdom in Revelation 22. In Revelation 22 at the beginning it says, Then he showed me a river of water of life. Sounds familiar, right? That's been promised throughout the whole scripture. He showed me a river 
of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. This is in that temple that has come down. And on either side of the river, there's the tree of life bringing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And its leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. So here is this living water present in the eternal kingdom, the eternal state. And it is flowing and it is producing life. It is producing fruit. It is producing all kinds of diversity, not unlike the diversity that the spirit produces within us with its gifts that we see in Corinthians. Paul tells us about all the particular uh, gifts that we have um, by the spirit, some uh, for one particular gift, some for another, but uh, different administrations of that. All of that is from the spirit. And here also we see at the end this beautiful picture of the river of living water flowing in this eternal kingdom, yielding fruit that is for the healing of the nations. And then verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify of these things for the churches. Remember, John is writing to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit. That's who we're talking about here. The role of the spirit, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. Sounds exactly like what Jesus was saying in John chapter seven. Come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, no charge. The water of life is there and he is inviting us. All his people are gathered together. The spirit is there with the bride saying, come and partake of this water of life without cost. It's a free gift of grace, God's wonderful grace that he has bestowed his spirit upon us ever since Pentecost in a way that changes us radically in a way that habit inhabits us and that we're able to produce fruit because we call called the fruit of the spirit. That's not just a, a name that we give to the spirit. Uh, that's just not the, a name that we give to love, joy, peace, and all of those qualities. That is the originating place of those qualities. The, the fruit comes from the spirit. It's only possible by the spirit. The flesh can only produce the deeds of the flesh. This spirit, this Holy Spirit, is a producer of life within us, and we are radically different. We are new creations if that spirit dwells in us, changes our identity completely. We are products of the river of living water. That is an incredible thing to know that in the midst of this feast on this particular day, Jesus stood up and made this proclamation about the Holy Spirit that just encompasses the whole plan of salvation and his purpose for the spirit in his redemptive plan throughout history. And to see all of the little ties, the way it ties together with the prophecies in the Old Testament and the rituals and what it points to in the end in Revelation 22, it's an amazing plan. And to him be the glory and honor because of it. I am thankful for the river of living water that he has given to us. And I'm thankful that he has drawn us and called us to come and drink of it freely without cost. Let's have another word of prayer. We'll close. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning. We thank you for the knowledge and understanding that we can only grasp because of your spirit to know that you have given us a new creation, your spirit, the spirit of Christ that indwells us, that changes us. We're not responsible for our own behavioral improvements. Your spirit is. It is the one that produces fruit within us, and it does so for your glory and for your praise. So we just pray that you would get more glory for that process. Thank you for this opportunity to look into your word today. We pray that you would be with those among us who were not able to be here this morning because of their illness. We ask that you would sustain them by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.